Here we go, spring of 2021. This is the 1080 Outdoors Podcast Land Management Series, where our main focus is pursuing the truth for everyday hunters like you. I wouldn't say it's kind of an FU, it's definitely an FU. Chronicle and document how our season's going and give you real-time updates, overall land management practices. You have to find a way to hunt big buck where they are. Welcome to the 1080 Outdoors Podcast, episode number 84. And we are in for a special treat. We have the turkey doc, Dr. Mike Chamberlain the number one turkey biologist in the United States and in the world, self-proclaimed by me. Um, If you want to listen to our previous episodes with Mike, go back to episode 32 from last year. We discuss a lot of kind of the future of the turkey species, um, keeping the populations high, creating more advantageous opportunities for our future generations to have the same type of hunting success and uh, numbers that we, we we were lucky enough to have um, this episode with Mike we talk a lot more about kind of the overall um, survival rate uh, nesting survival rate and then the overall ha- the best habitat to create those scenarios um, he also goes over he drops a cool little bomb about how turkeys stay warm and um, we even talk about the best planting for turkeys. So I'm joined with Jeff Rosh. Uh, Mike is going to call in here, and we just got done with this conversation with Mike, but we're kind of going backwards and doing this little intro. Jeff, what did you think about the conversation? Um, yeah, I wasn't a part of the last one, uh, episode 32, but very knowledgeable guy, uh, very nice guy. Uh, yeah, he's a cool dude. I mean, I know you – Put it out there to have him if he's ever up in this area he's got some land to hunt yeah i would do anything for him be sick i'll do anything for him i mean i don't know how he feels and i'm not trying to put i don't think he likes us that much i'm not trying to put pressure on you mike because i'm sure you get this all the time but if you got some land down there we'll fucking make a trip down to georgia well he's done like 37 podcasts already this year yeah but like he said only he only knows of like what do you say like three quote unquote major ones that have been you know, actually published. How about four? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Tenny Outdoors <laughs> Podcast. Episode 84, Mike Chamberlain. Um, I think the coolest, I, I, I just like, he, he's smart when it comes, well, he's smart, um, but he's good with describing kind of the habitat. And it always comes back to, it always comes back to diversity. It's never just one thing. Um, you know, I kind of try to back him into saying, like, if we had a 20-acre wide-open field, what would be the one thing you'd do? And it's never just one thing. It's always a, it's a high diversity. It's, it's you know, continue with your food plots, continue with your, your ag plantings, but maybe toss in some pollinator plantings, maybe toss in some native regrowth. Think about how to set back the forest into successional habitat. You know, we talk about all those things. Even talk about a little bit, um, like, the difference between clear cutting and select cutting when it comes to logging um, and doing both on your property. I th- was there one thing that stuck out to you? Um, I, I, I noticed how, I mean, I don't know if people necessarily correlate uh, deer hunting and deer habitat to turkey hunting and turkey habitat, but there's a lot of similarities. That's a great point. Uh, there's a lot of similarities between the two. And you might think. Same. You might think like. I don't, 
you know, some people like solely only give a shit about deer hunting, um, and vice versa. Some people only care about turkey hunting. But if if like us, you know, we have high interest in both. What can we do to optimize uh, our chances of harvesting a mature turkey or a mature deer? And wh- what can we do that's going to bring both of those in? Um, I've and, literally never. And if we I, can do both, I mean, it's it's a win-win. I have not come upon a thing that I would do. Because I'd say the most management practices that I want to do is, number one, I want to manage for deer. Number two, and it's right in there, I want to manage for all wildlife. Um, there really isn't anything, like maybe some clear-cutting where it's getting so thick that turkeys wouldn't even like to be through, but neither would deer. So it's just, it's, it's high diversity. It's doing a lot of things. It's, it's, it's number one, sitting back and looking at your property as a singular thing. There is nothing that we can say, or Mike can say, or anyone can say that you have to do this. You must do this, or this is the way to do things because your property or whatever property you're hunting on is its own unique monster. Like it just, you know, we've been on a few properties, quite a few properties this year, and just every single one is a different animal. It's just a different type of need. It's a different type of resource concern, and you have to follow what your property, what your land is telling you. I really believe that, and it usually leads to more diversity. There's no, I mean, there's nothing better than sitting in a stand or in a blind and seeing a wide variety of wildlife, whether it be sitting in a deer stand and seeing turkeys go by and squirrels pheasants grouse or if you're sitting in a turkey blind and you see deer and any other wildlife you know again the squirrels different birds the, um, and the big one too with turkeys we talk we talk a lot about nesting habitat and broading habitat they go right along the line with uh good fawning habitat absolutely i mean yeah it's the just same. high nutrient give give animals high nutrient dense food in the spring they need it the most when, when they need it the most they need that stuff in the spring so bad. You always think, what does the mom and the new babies need? What do they need? Yes, it's awesome planting soybeans and corn late season, guaranteed to bring in the deer. I just found another shed out in a bean field today. But what does the next generation, the things that we're going to be hunting in three, four years, the turkeys will be hunting in two, three years, what do they need in the spring to survive? And usually, well, they need something on the ground. That's 100% certain. Yeah. <laughs> There's no question about it. They need something on the ground. So. That will, I would say, 99% of their diet. Well, it falls back into the cover crop stuff, man. Like, get something on the ground. Get something in the ground in the fall. That stuff that comes back up in the spring is premier for turkey habitat and deer habitat. Get past Get past the nesting. Get past the, um, you know, get get past May. Maybe maybe don't plant your corn and bean fields until June, because you just let that fat whatever the cover crop or maybe even fallow be there in May. And then June, whatever you want to go in and spray, you want to go in and burn, you want to you want to go in and do whatever you want to do. Um, give them that time that's really important. Yeah, I mean obviously because. Uh, all your all your growth will start in the spring, and spring is when the turkey season is um, for toms, at least in our area. So don't take away um, your best asset on your land 
to bring those turkeys in, the food, and to help uh, raise those turkeys, you know, to give them the environment to nest and to give them the environment to grow these these young yeah they need they need cover to survive he did he made that pretty clear so enough of us talking we're getting excited it's so nice out turkey season is right around the corner we're about a month away can't fucking wait all right enjoy episode 84 mike chamberlain the turkey doc we are joined with the turkey doc dr mike chamberlain thanks for joining us again this year mike how is everything going in the southern states this winter? You're probably dealing with a little less snow than we are. Yeah, absolutely. Things are going well down here. It's it's uh it's seventy degrees and sunny today, so turkey season's right around the corner and and uh things are looking up. The dreary winter winter weather is hopefully behind us and, and we can get get to doing the things that we enjoy. Yeah. It's 60 here and sunny. Yeah, we're not far off where you're at. No, we're – it's uh, – the last of our snow is leaving. We're having as premier of a three-week period here of snow melt. I mean, we're not dealing with much flooding. The fields are, like, damn near thinking about drying up here. We did some frost seeding yesterday, and just from yesterday to today, I was able to walk out and do a little shed hunting, and it's – the ground's a lot for me. Yeah, so did you guys deal with – um, any of the crazy southern cold temp, like what Texas dealt with, and where where are you at, Mike? We Sorry, did, I'm in I'm in Georgia. We okay. we didn't we didn't deal with that. It that front dropped down the central, you know, kind of the Mississippi alluvial valley and, and west of there. So we didn't really deal with that that crap. But I just came from South Texas, and it was, man, it's it's unbelievable what has happened down there we i was over there helping cull some nil guy off of a ranch and and the number of animals that died from that cold and the fisheries the 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 fish kills particularly speckled trout which have which is a real popular saltwater fish down down here a real thin skin man the, the fish kills are pretty dramatic it's uh it's, it was crazy to see it everything was burned back from the cold um, but we didn't think thankfully we didn't get that and at least from a turkey's perspective what i saw from down there they didn't it didn't seem to bother them a bit so that's that's positive really i've is is there any truth to it i feel like in my mind in the past you know we deal in wisconsin we deal with um a lot of the the snow real cold melt real cold snow and you get those like hard cap layers of snow. And for whatever reason, in my mind, I feel like I've noticed some type of drop off possibly in a uh, population of turkeys in a certain area when we've had these like tough winters. So do you know, is there anything that you can speak on where, when it comes to that type of melting, freezing, melting, freezing, they're having, they, they have more of a hard, difficult time getting down to the actual food. Yeah, that that's hard on them. And then there's, there's been work published for years showing that turkeys up in your area in, in northern latitudes, when you have a really bad winter, you, you do lose some birds. Um, and the conditions you just described are usually the culprit. When you get severe cold, which turkeys can handle, but when you get severe cold coupled with snow pack conditions that don't allow them to get down to 
what they're trying to access and they don't have waste grain or they don't have forage that's on top of the snow or where they can get to it, yeah, they can, they can suffer. Turkeys are pretty resilient and they can go for fairly long periods of time without eating or with, you know, only eating really small amounts of food. But those conditions you just described, they, they can be problematic and, and you do lose lose birds in those situations. What's like the, have you ever been following a flock with a tough, like what's like the percentage of loss that you you see? Some of the earlier research showed, you know, sometimes it may be single digit percentages. Sometimes it may be 25, 30% uh, of your, of your birds you'll lose during super, super dramatic, cold, bad winters that, you know, that's not, that's not the norm obviously. And, and turkeys are, the turkeys are pretty amazing. A lot of people don't give them credit. They, they, they have ways of dealing with cold that are, they're pretty interesting. Um, but, but again, as long as you don't get the, the, the really significant snow packs, you typically don't see a lot of mortality in the winter and definitely not in the South. We don't, we don't lose birds to, you know, to winter weather. Mike, do you see, um, a certain type of bird, whether it be the hens, jakes, or toms, that are more susceptible to these conditions, or is it just it, it's kind of wide open? It, it's open. It really depends on you know each bird is a little bit different in in their individual behavior, but they all store fat the same. So you know you you basically would expect to see there shouldn't be a, a dramatic difference in sexes between how they deal with cold or, or what happens to them during those cold events. Yeah. Um, the only thing, a lot of it hinges on what, what condition they were in before that, you know, that weather hits. You kind of alluded to them having some type of what's the science behind them, keeping themselves warm. You kind of alluded to something. If you had, if you can think of a way to expand on that. Oh Yeah. Yeah, turkeys, the, the big thing they do is they preen their feathers. So, you know, they they, they preen, and that by doing that, that weatherproofs their feathers. It allows the feathers to fit tightly together. Um, it allows those feathers to shed precipitation. And as you know, you, you watch birds in the winter, they, they ruffle their feathers up. So that allows them to trap air under those feathers and then their body warms that air. So it's, it's actually like a down coat, if you will. And there's a reason that, you know, down coats are so popular in cold weather because feathers are, are great insulation. So that's two things. The other thing you'll see is, um, believe it or not, the scales that are on their legs actually help prevent heat loss. So when you got, if you have birds that, that have legs that don't have that, that scaly kind of feature to them, they have problems with heat loss. Turkeys don't have that. And, and they'll also, you know, we see behaviorally, sometimes birds will stay on the roost a little longer when it's real cold. They may not fly down. Um, in fact, the, this front that just came through Texas, I, I have some good friends that, that are all over Texas. And they were they were texting me saying, "Dude, the the Rios here haven't flown down in two days. Like they're they're sitting in a tree, huddled down, 
and basically what they do is they squat over their legs and they ruffle their feathers up so they protect their you know their legs while they're sitting on the limb and they just sat there for a couple of days and then the front passed and they and they flew down so they, they've got a, a variety of ways of dealing with cold do you think that do they like the texas birds or the so would the reels be more susceptible there's they're just not bred to handle cold as well um then say an eastern the easterns are probably the more hardy species yeah, I mean, your Easterns and your, your Merriams, you know, Merriams live in some really tough areas, um, particularly as you get up in the Dakotas and Montana. And, and that, I mean, those, those birds deal with some pretty tough winter conditions, particularly this year. And I suspect this year you you probably did and, and are seeing some, some mortalities in Merriams populations at some of the higher elevations that have dealt with pretty dramatic cold and, and a lot of snow. So, but yeah, you know, Rio's, if you, if you think about it, you're a bird in South Texas. Hell, you've never seen, you know, single digit temperatures and suddenly you're dealing with it. And that's kind of what my buddies were saying is like, you know, these birds just hunkered down and, and let it pass. Oh. And they, they didn't feed, they didn't do anything. They just sat in a tree, which is pretty, pretty interesting. Somebody changed the goddamn rules on them. They're like, hey, man, listen, we didn't move here to deal with this bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, big time. We we don't live in South Texas, you know, to deal with this crap. No, (laughs) I don't blame them either. Um... So what... So as we talk about mortality, we talked about that a lot last year. Um... If you guys want to go back and listen to that whole podcast with Mike, um, head back to last year's podcast and try to um, locate it. I think it's in the 40s. Jeffrey, if you want to pull up, try to pull up that episode number. Um, so if we want to just do a quick recap, and I want to know mainly if anything's changed with you, what is like, what's the what's the number one culprit for mortality? For For Tom's, it's us. Um, for for males, it's definitely gunshots. That's the primary mortality factor across the bird's range for males. Man, females, they they got it tough. They uh, kind of, we see uh, great horned owls, we see bobcats, coyotes. Those three are the three biggies, at least in the areas that, that I work in. And I mean, there are some other critters that will, you know, that will that will kill hens, but that's the three primary predators that that we see. If you could th- think of, I guess, what's what's like the primary way that they're getting killed? Is it when they're on the ground? Yeah, most most hens are getting killed on the nest. We, we don't see we don't see many mortalities. For hens that are outside of the nest, we we actually every now and then we'll have one killed in the tree. And that's that's almost always by great horned owls. In fact, we we just had one a couple weeks ago that got that got killed on the roost. The toms, it appears that if we don't shoot them, one of the primary mortality factors can be owls, and they do tend to kill them in in the tree. 
Uh, we'll occasionally lose, you know, a tom or whatever to cats or coyotes, and it it, it appears that they're usually just ambushed. You know, they're walking along a road or something, and and they get they get smoked. Um, so yeah, it just depends. So that's, I mean, that's a little surprising to me, and I don't doubt it for a second. I just know um, it seems to me like of all the wild game hunted around our area, turkeys just seem to be the most cautious and observant but i guess they are limited with um with scent i would say probably is their weakness so it just it surprised me a little bit that they they get snuck up on so easy yeah and i, I think you know the owls owls are owls are badass just man. freak they, predators they, just freaks yeah they're they're quiet they're silent you know they're silent they they swoop in at night. They hit the bird while they're on the on the limb. You know that that's a tough thing to avoid. I, most of our mortalities, and we, we haven't sat down and just quantified this yet, but a lot of the mortalities we see are birds that are walking along roads or rights of way, and and that kind of makes sense, particularly where I live. You know, down here it's it's more dense, and birds can't see as far. Um, as they can kind of in the upper Midwest, but, but we do see some ambush situations, you know, where cats are great at that. They'll just sit tight and and hang around and wait for something to to ease by them. And, and they have the advantage, you know, when they're in, when they're in a situation where they're not moving and the birds are. So that's typically what we see. Well, here's the thing working against the turkeys is if you can sit out in a big blind in the middle of a field and they can't recognize that that's danger, you have to think that an animal that's made to be a predator probably has some success on them. Oh, yeah. What's, oh, yeah. The, what's the deal yeah. with What's the deal with the blind out in the middle of the field, like the day of? Like we've, we can put it out that minute, and they just have – they just I mean, obviously we have decoys that play along with it, but is it just the decoys that just get so distracted by it that they can't – recognize the blind or what is it i honestly have no idea i <laughs> I, I can i can speculate we we will pop a blind up at a net you know where we're trapping and they'll pick that blind out sometimes and spook off of it yep and like you said you can go plop a blind up in the middle of a field sometimes and make it work the one thing we do know is that the way turkeys see is different than way, the way we see. They, they have more rods in their eyes, and so their color and their depth perception is, is different than ours. So one of the reasons turkeys turn their heads a lot is to, to make up for that lack of depth perception. So in, in a lot of ways, they see a blind differently than you and I do. Yeah. Of course, I don't understand. I don't understand how they see it. I don't know what it looks like to them, but but clearly, it doesn't look like the box that it looks like to us sometimes. Yeah, and it's something. Uh, that, I don't know. Yeah. They, they do some crazy things. Well, we, well, we it's gotten pretty ridiculous. I mean, we kind of almost not exclusively, but you know, if you bring someone hunting or if you want to get it done, it seems like we've been finding the most success by just setting up right in the middle of the field with the blind I think partially because it seems like they they want to be out away from the woods to do their thing 
Um, so even like blinds along the wood line, I've had less success than just out in the middle. But the depth perception makes a lot of sense because, you know, you have the dark black blind, you wear black, you know, they're not seeing you. I've noticed getting picked off before, you know, randomly, like you said, it's just random. It's like they choose to be like they choose to be smarter some days. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they if they choose it or whether they just it's situation specific. You know, maybe yeah, certain situations, certain things. I, you know, way like, the lights I'm hitting. The wind, wind, for instance. Yeah. You know, when we're trapping, if it's a windy day, those blinds aren't nearly mm. as effective, at least in in my experience, because there's something moving all the time. You know, and um, so yeah, I think it just depends on the on the situation and I think it also depends on the bird some you get a tom that is jacked up and his testosterone levels are high and you know the way he sees his environment is different than maybe oh, yeah. it was the day before absolutely yeah I, I I do think sometimes you could be sitting in just a chair no blind <laughs> put the decoys out there he might come running in I mean the most yeah, fired up toms that we've I've seen yeah I, I wouldn't be surprised I want to get back a little bit to that nesting success and what we as land managers can do to improve. Um, you know, I know we talked a little bit last year. Once again, the episode with Mike last year was episode 32. This episode's 84, Mike. So we've we've doubled up. We've been we've been rolling since we last talked to you. Um, there you go. There you go. <laughs> what? I know we talked about it a little bit last year. I don't think you had a great, you actually, I think you made a point last year where you said that you were surprised because you had done some recent research where you realized that actual, actually uh, thicker cover um, didn't seem to hold them or it didn't show that it actually improved mortality. Um, maybe let's, let's kind of get into some of that. Like what can we do as land managers to improve the mortality of nesting and then just just growing our herd because I, I do think we're struggling with numbers around here. Yeah, we see, and this is across, you know, seven hundred plus nests that we've monitored and measured vegetation at the nest. We see no pattern whatsoever between cover, how much cover is there, and whether she'll hatch or not. And I know that that seems that may seem like nonsensical bullshit, but. But it, it's it's true. We see very very little relationship there, and it it suggests to us that predation is more of a random type event. That there's just there's a lot of predators out there, and it really doesn't depend on what the vegetation looks like per se. It may depend on other things that we that we're not measuring or we don't understand. So so yeah we don't see that clear relationship and instead what we see is that some nest hatch and they're in areas that don't look like nesting cover to me at all and others fail that look like they're perfect you know to my to my eyes it's like god that, that's a great looking nest site and she gets smoked two days in you know to the process so that being said there, there are things that that we as land managers can do one, we can make sure as much of the landscape as possible is suitable for nesting. In other words, this bird's pretty clear on where it nests. They're going to nest in areas where 
the vegetation is not up to, to our head and that has some type of screening cover on the ground. So think I can hide a bird. Well, what could hide a bird? Like where could you hide a turkey? The bottom line is if it's about up to your knees, if the vegetation in, in one direction or the other is about up to your knees, she can hide in it. So Shit, I'd say even I, shin. I've, I feel like I've seen those freaks just like lay down tight to the ground. Do they? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah if, they th- if they think they can hide, they'll yeah. they'll they'll duck. Um, um, before we get into like the actual, would you say that the reason could we be talking about two separate types of vegetation? One being more beneficial for actual nesting um, habitat, and then maybe the thing that's in people's minds where like they think of the thick, nasty, you know, just give them a lot of cover is actually more beneficial for the actual. Um, time right after they're born. So that survival time, the, the you know, the two, what is it, like a month or two into their life. Maybe that's where it becomes more thick and they're looking for more edge because why would a thing that can't smell just want to bury themselves into something they can't see? Yeah, well, what we actually see is almost kind of the reverse of that. And, mm-hmm. and here's why. So, so basically what we see is nesting cover is usually I can hide in it. You know, it, it sometimes is knee high. Sometimes it's a little less. Sometimes it's up to your thighs. It's it can be pretty thick, but it's usually not dog hair thick. Yeah. And the reason is is turkeys can't move through that stuff, so they need to be able to move and also hide. So, you know, this thinking that it just this this jungle of vegetation that you can barely scratch your way through. That's not nest cover either. That's 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 nothing for a turkey. Yeah. So you, you tend to see nesting cover is is areas where there's woody stuff, there's herbaceous stuff, there's diversity, and she can move around. But when she squats down, and I, I kind of use this analogy: get out on your knees and look out across the forest, and if you could hide a bird. If, if you can't see through all the stuff while sitting on your knees, that's that's nest cover. On the other hand, brooding cover, once they hatch, they always head to more open areas where they can see, always. So they, they get out of that thick stuff They because the pulps can't move around in it. And they need lots of bugs because they're, they eat primarily insects the first couple weeks of life. So they hatch, and she immediately gets them out to a more open area, think edge of pasture, edge of field, open food plot, a hardwood stand with a lush green understory, places where she can stand there and watch, and those poults can move around freely without having to fight their way through vegetation. That's typically what brood cover is. Well, that makes sense. And I'm an idiot, and I'm glad you're here to talk to me. <clears throat> I, uh, um, what? So, I don't want to get too far off subject, but like, we talk about it where they they want to eat insects. What what percentage of their diet you think is insects? Actual living, um, some type of living animal or thing, um, that they're picking through yeah. the ground. 
Yeah, the first couple of weeks of life, that's all they eat. They, so, they are entirely in, insectivores. Um, how, how concerning is it? So you got, how concerning is it where we're looking at pesticides and insecticides being used right around that, not very long after that timing? That That is a concern of mine, and, and there is a – if you look at science right now, you'll see widespread reports of dramatically declining insect populations globally, not just here. And that's a cause of concern to me because there aren't – you know, it, this is not just a turkey issue. This is a – this is an ecosystem issue. I mean, insects are vital parts of the ecosystem. And for this bird, they have to have insects. The first couple of weeks of life, they're, they need protein almost constantly because, one, they're growing, but, two, they're also molting feathers. They're, they're, they're growing new feathers, and their bodies are growing rapidly, so they have to have a lot of insects. And if you've got declining insect populations, then you have situations where birds are having to move more to forage, and that's not that's not a positive. That's that's negative. And we, I have a I have a student actually right now who's finishing up his his research, looking at insect abundance in areas where broods spend time, and his numbers just first glance at the number of bugs that are at these places compared to what researchers found in the 1970s it's it's shocking the the reduction in how many bugs are there it's pretty startling and it leads me to suspect that that is one of the many things that's negatively affecting this bird is is these insect communities are not as diverse and they're not as abundant as they used to be, not just because of pesticide applications, but also the lack of management of vegetation across broad areas of the, of the U.S. It is a cause of concern. It's just something we can't really put our fingers on at the moment. So as, as a land manager, you know, ways to improve that would be planting some, you know, pollinator plantings, clover plantings, green, you know. Yeah, succulent green vegetation. That That is, that's the way to, to produce bugs. Have succulent vegetation, whether it's in the winter, whether it's in early spring, and particularly in, you know, mid-spring to summer, Anything you can do that stimulates vegetation, whether it's fire, whether it's disking, um, I try to tell people, you know, stay off the bush hog, fight the temptation to make it look pretty, if you will. Fallow areas that were disturbed last year that you may think that looks like crap, um, go take a walk. Go take a walk, and if you're if you're seeing insects flush in front of you, so are they. If you walk through something and you're not flushing any insects, then they're going to have to to fight to find stuff to eat, just like you know, just like you're seeing. So, yeah, that's a good fire point. disking disturbance. Think disturb, disturb, disturb. That's the way to that's the way to have succulent plants and bugs. Do you have like a 
successional um, phase that you prefer that you think turkeys prefer? You mean as as far as like time since disturbance? Yeah, like, well, I'm not a biologist, um, but isn't so? It, I think there isn't there like different phases of it. So you have like the that year of like two through. I don't know, seven or something before woody species start forming and then obviously it turns into hard hardwood timber at some point in most areas in our area for sure um yeah it, it just does, it really depends on where you are yeah uh, and what the what the forest community is like down where i'm where i'm at you know you can disturb these soils down here and like for instance with with fire and what we see is turkeys will use the, the stand the same year as the fire. In fact, they'll they'll go back into the stand the next day in many cases. And we see most use within one to two years of the fire event. So after about two years, soils down here are so rich and, and succession is so fast that, you know, it, after a couple of years, you need to go back and, and burn again. Um, would you say that is that is that showing you that once the stand moves to majority of grasses they actually don't prefer it so they're actually more they're actually going they would more prefer that first you know Forbes type succession yeah well what you what you really see is um, what happens is, initially after most disturbances whether it's disking or fire you typically will see herbaceous grasses and forbs will take off and then as it sits there which then that's a good thing as it sits there it starts succeeding into more woody plants and at that point the attractiveness to a turkey goes down yeah so what you want to try to do is keep keep the plant community in herbaceous grasses, forbs. There, there can be a woody component to it, but when you start getting shrubs and saplings, that's not turkey habitat. So at that point, you need to start over, go back and disturb the site again, um, if that makes sense. You, you kind of want to keep it in that grassy, forby plant community because those are low-growing and turkeys can see over them, and they attract a lot of bugs. So you, you kind of get the best of both worlds. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're, what you're describing, native native habitats. Would you say the ideal – I mean, is there is it is it hard to beat? The ideal habitat for a turkey would be just – say you have a 20-acre um, conventionally farmed ag field. To turn that – 20 acres into an ideal habitat for turkeys is it far-fetched to say that um letting it go fallow that and and you know maybe enhancing the succession a little bit by what you're saying but by disturbance um would that be the ideal habitat just native regrowth well not not entirely because you know those waste grains that I mean that that agricultural field can can provide valuable yeah. habitat at certain parts of the life cycle. Um, you know, early warm season grasses and and fallow type areas they can be really beneficial 
habitat for turkeys as long as they're disturbed and maintained. What you often see with fallow areas is, you know, the landowner will let it go fallow and then they let it sit there for two or three years and the next thing you know, it's it's trying to be a thicket. It's trying to be a sapling, you know, a young forest. And at that point, it, it's starting to move away from turkey habitat and move towards something else. So, um, you know, agricultural plots can be super habitat. It, it just, it really depends on, at a broader scale, it depends on what else is there. If, right. if all you have is a 20 acre ag field, then you really don't have turkey habitat to begin with. But if you've got 20 acre ag that's beside, you know, forest and, you can kind of look at that that ag field as well. That's providing some critical winter forage, or that's providing some some clover forage during the spring, or that or whatever the situation is. Then you kind of interpret it with a different context. I got gotcha. you. Are you seeing any more benefit? Because I know there, I know it's widely different if you spring or fall burn. Are you seeing any more benefit for the turkeys? Yeah, yeah. Uh, depending on where you're at, I- at least in the deep south, what our burning is like right now. There's a lot of prescribed burning going on now. The reason is, is you know, the fuel loads are there and, and the, everything's drying out a little bit from winter, so you can actually carry a fire. Um, you tend to see from a turkey's perspective that Burns that occur right now, or or in your area, um, maybe three or four weeks from now, are early enough in the growing in the year that you don't impact nesting, but they're late enough to where they only sit there for a short period of time before you get a, a flush of regrowth. So, if that makes sense, so we don't we tend to see turkeys use those burns more which makes sense because if you burn in december what you end up doing is creating non-habitat for the bird until spring green up depending on where you are i tend to encourage people to you know to burn just prior to nesting season depending on scale and, and how big a blocks you're burning but burn just prior to nesting season where it's only going to sit there a short period of time before you're going to get a good plant response. Which makes sense because long, they're not nesting probably yeah. until there's some legitimate green, regardless of where the area is. Yeah, yeah. And, and what you want to avoid, obviously, is, is burning in huge blocks to where you remove all of your potential nesting cover. But as long as you're you're burning in smaller pieces, you know, birds are pretty – they're pretty plastic. They – you know, you, you burn this 20-acre stand, and they've got access to six or seven other 20-acre stands that are fairly similar. They're just they'll just go nest over there. I mean, it's not it's not a big deal if you if you burn a thousand acres, then that at you know at one time and that's a lot of their nesting cover. Then that's that's a problem, obviously. Yeah. So I think what I'm gaining from you or getting from you is. The best habitat is a lot of diversity. Give me some hardwoods. Give me some, um, 
you know, early successional type setbacks, uh, you know, throw in some normal ag, you know, that's always going to provide food for me. Is there, is there a thing, a seed or a planting that you would recommend, um, for the land manager or, um, property owner to really capitalize on turkeys? Yeah, I mean, there, there's some options for sure. I mean, one one planting that I that I actually use a lot, and I, we see a lot of turkey use of these areas, would be, you know, everybody at least down here, everybody plants their their fall food plots for deer, and they'll plant a cereal grain like wheat or oats or something, and they'll usually mix in some kind of clover. It's a real common strategy here. Yep. And we actually see a lot of, of turkey use of those food plots, not during the fall, although they do use it. But right now and on into the brooding season, because that wheat and that oats gets senescent. You know, it gets rank, and deer stop eating it as it gets as it gets taller, and then it it seeds out and it dries, and it, it's just a brown stalk. But it's got a a carpet of clover growing under it. Yeah. And we, we see a lot of turkey use of those plots like that because the seed head is still there. So you got, it's producing seed. You got green vegetation that's attracting insects. We see broods use those areas. We see adults use those areas. So that, that is one strategy that, you know, you planted in, say, at least down here, you planted in September, for instance. And you got solid habitat until June. Well, you, you know? yeah, you're just and describing you a good you're describing a good cover crop regimen. Yeah, and you don't do anything to it. You just yeah. leave it alone, and then you rinse and repeat the next year. Um, we, you know, some popular stuff that you see for turkeys, and they do they love it. Like chupas are a real popular plant for turkeys. If you've got turkeys and you don't have feral hogs which i know y'all don't but what we do down here feral got hogs can hogs. be real problematic for chufa but chufas are really super attractive um planting for turkeys they they absolutely love it can can you elaborate Even a little bit agricultural crops like corn and you know that grain sorghums and all i mean turkeys use those as well can you can you explain what that is just chufa yeah it's like a chicory yeah, version, like a, isn't it? It's like a bulb. It, it produces like a bulb, mm. and and they will actually they'll actually root forage on it. They they'll dig it up, scratch it up. So is it a cover um, crop? Planted in the fall, and then it comes back in the bulb. They're digging up the next spring, or yeah, they, they, as soon as it becomes available to them, they they're digging it. It's pretty, uh, and that's one of the reasons you you have to be a little careful if you're planting. If you're planting chufa, if you've got other species that that will um, that will dig it up. So it sounds like it's somewhat similar to a, a common fall food plot planting around here with like turnips and radishes. Um, I guess that's where I'm comparing it to. Do you see? I don't know if that's a very common thing down where you are, but do, have you have you done any research on? up in our area if turkeys have any interest in that at all i i don't know um like typically and, and don't don't 
fully quote me on this, but I, I think in your area... Partial quote. You know, Chupa, Chupa, no, I was going to say Chufa would be more of a... You typically plant Chufa like in late spring. Um, and your radishes and stuff like that, I would assume you're planting in early fall. Is that right? That's generally when we plant them down here. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So it's actually, yeah, so what are people planting Chufa for? I don't honestly know if turkeys use the the bulbs. I, I I have never seen evidence that they do that. And I, we plant turnips and we plant radishes and stuff. And I've never seen them dig them up. Um, I'm not saying they don't, but I've, I've never seen it. Yeah, I can't. I don't think I have either. And I've planted quite a few fields with turnips and radishes. Chufa is always the most common thing you hear about, it seems like. Yeah, and basically chufa, you know, they'll they'll forage on as soon as the plant matures, they they're gonna eat, they're gonna start feeding on it, and they, you know, and they'll dig the the bulbs up. So it it can it can be a magnet, dude. I mean, it if you if you plant it and they find it, they'll they'll hit it pretty hard. That's awesome. Um, <clears throat> all right, so we're gonna we're gonna let you get going here. I know you. Uh, we appreciate your time. You're busy. This is like the thirtieth podcast you have done everyone who's listening <laughs> please just search mike chamberlain on the internet you'll probably find a million podcasts make sure to share our hours first um <clears throat> i have a couple quick questions for you just quick firing questions do you have five more minutes all right yeah all right now when you would you prefer for habitat purposes when someone would log their property would you for turkey management, would you recommend clear cut, select cut, and if and if whatever answer you you choose, just try to elaborate on that a little bit, just quickly. Uh, depends on the situation, but there's pros and cons to both. If if I could, if I could do a select cut, I guess what where, the thought of preserving roosting trees like you want them to roost in that timber stand still yeah then obviously you, you you'd want to avoid clear cutting if if you could um the the positive about of doing a clear cut is you, you you do tend to produce pretty good early successional cover for a few years but then you're going to go through this time period where that's not turkey habitat and you don't see that with select cutting. If, if it's done correctly and you don't remove too much of the tree canopy where you, you kind of create open forest conditions but not just a dense thicket, then, then you can manage a stand repeatedly. In other words, you can enter a stand and do thinnings multiple times over the course of, say, a decade or two decades and keep turkey habitat on the landscape, whereas with clear cutting, you do produce some habitat initially that, that can be valuable, but then you go through this period where it's not turkey habitat before it becomes turkey habitat again, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I'm wondering if you're kind of describing more of a silvopasture type scenario versus, you know, cutting, leaving treetops, and it's kind of a mess. Do they get much, <clears throat> do they want that structure slash uh, cover with those treetops, or do you think they prefer more of a silvopasture type situation. 
it depends on what part of the life cycle they're in. You know, yeah. the situation where you got like a, a pasture type situation under growing trees, you know, that, that's classic brooding habitat. Whereas the the tops being left and the cover being there, that's more of a nesting, you know, structure kind of area. So it really kind of depends on your objectives. And you may, you could do, you could easily do both, obviously, if you wanted to, if you wanted to have a situation where you've got pretty good nesting cover right beside brooding areas, then consider doing both of those. Yeah. As you, yeah. Diversity comes back to that usually, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Now I'm going to throw a scenario at you. I'm sitting in my blind out in the middle of the field. Got my decoys out, have some toms coming in. They're by themselves. There's no hens in the vicinity that you know of. They come up, they see the decoys, they stop, and they just start displaying. They're not scared. They don't They don't run away at all. Um, last year we had, a, we had a turkey that displayed out in front of us for, for an hour and a half before it finally committed and came in. What do you think the reasoning is? if there is any scientific thing to this or if it's just your thought on why they hang up, like what is the, is it just, is it just that natural thing where the hens are supposed to come to them? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but they've come, fine. but they've come it so far. Works. They visually have appeared. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, and it, it, yes, the short answer is, yeah, he's, he's very likely thinking she should come to me. I'm, I'm here where she can see me. It's, it's on her. And then he'll turn around the next day and run from one side of a field to the other in yeah. a dead sprint to run up to a, you know, a squatted hen or a hen decoy. It, it literally is the airs of the airs of the wind, man. It's like what you get on that day. But, but yeah, the, the, the current, well, the, I mean, the thinking is if, when they hang up is they think they should be able to see you or they think you should come to them, which is in their world. That's the way it, that's the way it primarily functions. So it makes sense. And I've, I've even seen where like they, I've had them come in early in the morning they hang up like right off the roost. It just seems like they're not as aggressive then. And if they come back like mid morning, I believe the same turkeys, but who knows, um, come charging right in. It's just, it really, they're just, they're in different moods at different times of the morning, huh? Or day. Yeah, what we see with with our GPS telemetry is it, sometimes these birds, when they fly down, they have an agenda. They they have a routine that they're used to doing. They have places that either they, they know they're going to encounter a hen or they, they have something that is dictating where they're headed that we don't always understand. And, and sometimes, for whatever reason, they fly down and ignore us. Yeah and go run that routine and then suddenly at like you said nine o'clock in the morning they go okay i remember i heard that hen over there i'm going to circle back and check it out and for whatever reason they, they show back up we see that a lot with our with our gps data yeah our episode last week was should you stay or should you go and it usually is if you want to kill something you should stay if you want to stay. not be bored stay. you should go <laughs> Yeah, if you want to have a cup of coffee, go. If you want to kill a bird, stay. Yeah. Oh, man. Why is that? Well, he just I think it's just cuz they're it seems like they're on some type of routine. They're they have a purpose that they're what they're doing. 
<clears throat> so if I'm out, if I'm out yeah, we, on, on the last day of the season we, and I hear a bird down in the valley and I'm sitting up on top of the ridge and I, I need to kill, I want to f- fill my tag before the season ends. And the, the question arises, should I stay or should I go? You you're should, staying. You shall stay. I shall stay. Right. <laughs> he knows you're there because they're freaks. If you've called to him and he's answered you, that be that would be what – if you were in that scenario, if I were in that scenario, now I tend to be a pretty patient guy, but if I were in that scenario and he answered me, then I would sit tight. And because I know, and we've shown this clearly with our spatial data, where we had hunters that got up, we were GPS – we had GPS units on the hunters or in the hunter's jacket, and we had toms marked. That hunter gets up and leaves at 8 o'clock. That bird circles back at 11. Yeah. We see it all the time. So if that bird had answered me and he knew I was there and I'd gotten a response from him, I'd sit there to the ends of the earth. If it was the last day of the season, I'd be sitting there until dark. <laughs> yeah. And it's... Ugh, to it's tough. It is tough. It is truly tough. I can't. It, ugh. Two more questions for you. Is there any truth to a decoy, whether it should face a tom or face away from a tom? Do they actually have some type of emotional stimulant, whether it's facing away or not? Or do they, do you, do you, I mean, it's probably difficult. You probably haven't ran many tests on this, but what's your thought on that? Yeah, I don't have any data to to say one way or the other, but what I think is happening is, you know, that fan is 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 kind of that's a key in the turkey world. You know that that fan is that's money, whereas the head, you know, turkeys recognize each other partially based on their heads, and we know that head color matters it, yeah. it's related to aggressiveness it's related to these things that we don't really un- fully understand but the head matters so i can see in entirely it makes complete sense to me that a tom would react differently looking at a fan from behind versus a head particularly if he was super wound up and aggressive i i could see that all right god damn it i got <laughs> i have two more questions all right this one will be quick the f- one will be quick and then you'll probably appreciate the last one. <clears throat> I'm going to go through the three colors. Red, what does it mean in one word? Redhead. Mad. White. Good, good question. <laughs> the white and the blue. The, the white and the blue are a little bit. And, and this is all. This is suspicion on our part. We, you know, you kind. This is just based. Hey man, it's a if partial quote. Captive, we're not, we're not, we're not quoting you. <laughs> yeah, no. If you look at, if you look at captive work on birds, there, there does tend to be what appears to be a relationship between I'm pissed off or I'm scared and red. Yeah. And the blue and the white, a bird can go. It, it appears that their skull cap and parts of their their caruncles, their, their face, if you will, can change almost in an instant from blue to white to the point where if you – there's actually some photographs of this. A, a famous photographer that lives down here, she captured it. 
where a bird literally, it looks like he drew a line down the middle of his face. Yeah, it's, wow. One half is white and the other half's blue. That is awesome. That's so crazy. There, appear, there appears to be some something going on there related to their mood and how calm they are, how comfortable they are, whereas red does does appear to be more of a I'm either scared or I'm really mad. Yeah, I've always felt like when I have a white head, you're in a good you're in a good spot. And like you said, yeah, red yeah, yeah. red can mean anything. It seems like well, red, yeah, like you can you see turkeys running in with a red head, but you also see the ones that are they pop up over you know the first thing you're you're looking for is a red head. Yeah, yeah. All right, final, last final question. I appreciate your time. I know you're busy. What is the update on your um, your lifelong goal of being on a sheep hunt? Have you made any progress on it? I have made zero. <laughs> well, here we are, holding uh, you accountable. Yeah, no, I, man, the last year has, has been for everybody. It sucked so bad. that. Yeah, it's been a I, wild one. I had to... I had to cancel everything, and I, I'm just hoping I can do my turkey hunts this year. But I, I am going to get on a sheep hunt, and I've just got to make it happen. But it's so expensive, and, you know, my wife is admittedly not very keen on me <laughs> spending a lot of money on shooting a, sh- you know, a sheep or they what she calls a goat. So we'll see. Well, Still we'll, on the bucket list. We'll, we're going to stay on you about it. Because I'd like to know somebody. I'd like to. to know someone firsthand who went. I know. I need to do it. I need to do it. <laughs> I suck. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't say that. But I figured I'd follow up on you since we talked about it last year a little bit. All right, Mike. I appreciate your time. Is there anything else? What is the most important thing that you want hunters to realize or think about or do this spring before the season starts? and think of any way you could contribute to the conservation and management of this bird, whether it's habitat, landscape, harvest, whatever you can do on your own little neck of the woods to help this bird, consider doing it because we're going to all have to put our collective heads together to to make sure we are still hunting this bird the way we want to hunt it. 50 years from now and, and i hope that's the case so it's going to take all our collective efforts absolutely and head back last year's episode at 32 we talked a lot more about kind of the, the grim outlook a little bit and if we don't change what we're doing in some ways that we you know we might not have turkey hunting for our kids so mike it's been great talking to you we appreciate it um if you ever get back up to wisconsin turkey hunting you got a place to hunt Sounds good, man. It was good joining you. Absolutely. Thanks, Mike. All right, man. I think we 